I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Welcome to Season 9, Episode 3 of the Parenting Aces Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and I have just stepped off of a plane flying from Atlanta back to Southern California, and I'm so excited to bring this week's episode to y'all, but it has just been a crazy week, so I'm a little behind, and I ask your forgiveness in that. I am planning to write an extensive article on my experience with today's podcast guest, but until then, the show notes for this episode are pretty brief. I have included contact information for our guest, Andy Blow, and some links that I highly encourage y'all to click on and read through. But I will be writing a longer piece about my experience going through sweat testing myself and what that was all about and what I found out and how I'm using that information and why I feel like that's so important for today's junior and college players. But for now, like I said, an abbreviated version of the show notes on ParentingAces.com and just a phenomenal conversation with Andy Blow from Precision Hydration about sweat, what we can learn from it, how we can use that information to improve performance, and what we can do if we have a kid who is a salty sweater and as a result is experiencing cramping and other performance uh, issues, I guess, um, that go along with that. Andy is a former triathlete. He is a phenomenal human being. I had the pleasure of sitting down over coffee with him and his business partners, and I am just so thrilled to bring you this week's episode. In light of the fact that we are in the midst of the Australian Open, which is typically a very, very hot slam where we see play suspended for heat, where we see players using ice towels and other methods to try and cool off, and where sadly, we often see players having to retire due to the conditions. So I'm excited to bring y'all Andy Blow. Enjoy the episode, and please check back on ParentingAces.com for a more in-depth article on what Andy's doing and how it can help your junior player. Andy Blow, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on, Lisa. And sorry to get you out of bed extra early. To do oh, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> thank God for coffee. Exactly. Yeah. So I usually start by asking a new guest to give a little bit of their history in tennis, but given that you come from a different background, I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about how you became interested in this whole notion of hydration and fluid loss and electrolyte loss in athletes. Yeah, it's a good job you don't want to ask me about tennis because I I mean, I think when I look at a racket, I can... I can assess which end that you've got to hold, who you've got to handle. <laughs> but beyond beyond that, you don't want to you don't want to be talking to me about anything more technical um, when it comes to the actual sport of tennis. But my interest in hydration started many many years ago when I was training to be a triathlete and trying to get to grips with competing in hot environments. Sometimes because where I'm from 
in the UK, obviously, we, we have some reasonably hot days in the summer on occasion, but we're not famous for our hot weather. And yet the sport of triathlon sort of originated, obviously, in Southern California and go, goes on in a lot of nice hot places around the world. And, and I sort of found out from a fairly young age that I would, if I went to these hot places to race, quite often I would underperform compared to what I would do, be able to do in the cold. And it took me a very long time to unravel that problem. And, and really what it came down to was sweat loss, salt loss and hydration for me. So it was a very sort of personal interest that first got me into it. And I mean, we hear this term salty sweaters. What does that mean? Well, basically when, when you sweat, obviously your sweat comes from your blood. So your, your blood plasma, the watery part of your blood is the reservoir from which sweat is drawn it moves from your capillaries near the surface of your skin into the sweat glands and then out onto the surface of the skin to to evaporate and cool you down and because blood itself is very very salty you lose an element of salt in your sweat but the body's clever and because salt is a valuable resource in the body your body tries to sort of reclaim some of that salt at the sweat gland before the sweat moves onto the skin and, and evaporates but the interesting thing is that different people lose salt at different rates. And what I learned through, first of all, through years of trial and error and eventually through some sort of medical testing was that I lose a really, really quite high amount of salt in my sweat. So we usually talk about it in milligrams of sodium per litre of sweat. And I would lose about 1.8 grams or 1,800 milligrams per litre of sweat. Whereas we meet other people that only lose two or 300 milligrams of sodium per litre of sweat. So there can be a very, very big difference when you, when you look at total sweat and salt loss over a number of hours. And how does that impact performance? I mean, you talked about the fact that when you were in hot environments, you found that your performance dropped. Why? For, for me, a big part of it, and this isn't the case for everyone, but for me, a big part of it was sort of um, performance of my muscles, particularly. I would cramp quite a lot. And I would get very sore and stiff muscles and, and that, would, that would affect, obviously that would affect my performance quite dramatically. Um, it also just, um, the, the salt loss and the fluid loss, if you've got a high sweat rate, affects your cardiovascular performance and your ability to cool down. So you just can feel very sluggish and lethargic and, and tired, but it's not the same kind of sluggish tiredness that you get from being low on energy or carbohydrates. And, and often especially and i found this as a young athlete people find it hard to distinguish from between the two i would i would just describe it as a general kind of feeling of cruddiness and a feeling of malaise when you're in the in the heat for a long period of time and and when i look back as well it used to make me i used to crave salty foods quite a lot which was kind of my body's way of telling me that i needed some extra salt but i wasn't quite in tune enough to recognize that that might have been the root of the problem at that time and it can also affect cognitive ability right very much so, yeah. One of the feed, bits of feedback that we get from athletes that um, that suffer from you know severe electrolyte depletion is like a mental fog and, and concentration slowing down and reactions slowing down. And I think that's one of the interesting areas where it could certainly impact performance in tennis because although you need an element of coordination and, and a lot of focus when you're running a marathon at the end of an Ironman triathlon, it's nothing like the level of fine skill that you need when you're playing a long five sat sets or three sets of tennis so right that, that's where I think you know that's one of the areas in which it, it could be interesting for tennis players and 
One of the reasons we decided to do this podcast now is we've got the Australian Open happening in Melbourne, Australia. And well, it's not happening when we're recording this because we're recording this in early December. However, by the time this airs, the Australian Open will be underway. And that particular tournament is known for extreme heat, for um, you know developing specific rules around heat and what the athletes can do in terms of taking breaks and and you know taking time to go change clothes and all of those things. So. How does the extreme heat in a place like Melbourne, Australia differ from other places? And why do we see these tennis athletes during the Australian Open suffer so extremely there? I think it's a really interesting question because performance in the heat, sweating is a big part of performing in the heat. And I think that so if if we go back to kind of a, a question of like why do humans sweat and and it's and that's an important one to answer to to get to the bottom of this because we sweat to cool down this might sound obvious but we sweat because it's the most effective way in a hot dry environment of getting heat away from the body um, other animals kind of pant and other animals have other mechanisms for losing heat but none of them are really as effective as sweating a lot so to an extent, the more you can sweat, the better you, you'll do in the heat. And obviously, the, the, the harder you're working in a hot environment, the more the more sweat you lose, the more uh, body heat you can conduct away to the environment or evaporate away, should I say, to the environment. But the problem comes when, when you've got athletes that are working really, really hard in tennis in, in a kind of intermittent sprinting way, and you're generating tons of heat as well as the heat that's coming at you from the external environment, the sweat rates that you produce can be so high that although your body's got to cool you down, it runs into the problem of not being able to take on enough fluid to, to rehydrate. And then you're in this kind of no-win situation where you're heating up, sweating as much as you can, dehydrating really rapidly, and then unable to keep up that sweat rate and that work rate so you end up on the floor. And I think, you know, although I'm not a close observer of tennis, I've, I've, I know that from past years, Melbourne have had to adapt the rules at the tournament and they've had to allow more breaks. And there's always this ongoing debate of, you know, how, how they can best look after the athletes in that environment. I think right. the other thing with it is as well is you've got, although tennis players are generally on the circuit and traveling to a lot of hot places, because this is now Northern Hemisphere winter where a number of the athletes will be based, if they haven't had time to go out and really fully acclimatise to the heat before Melbourne, I think that's that can make it even worse for catching people out. Right, right. And in terms of hydration, Andy, you know, I've always been taught to use, pardon my crassness, but the pee test and yep. looking at the colour of your urine to determine whether you're adequately hydrated. Is that still the accepted way of looking at hydration or is there something a little more <laughs> scientific and um, sophisticated that we should be using? So it's a really good question. Um, the, the reality is that the color of your urine is one of a number of indicators that can show how well hydrated you are or not. But the problem is that in, in sports science and sports coaching, it's kind of become this gold standard for you know, it, 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 
it's perceived to, that it can tell you everything that you need to know about your hydration status. Now, when, when the theory behind it is that when your body's, your kidneys in particular, are trying to conserve water, so when you're becoming dehydrated, you, your body tends to concentrate your urine and make it less, give you less urine volume, so it becomes darker in color because there's more waste products visible in it. And that can be a sign that your body's saying, hang on a minute, I need to hold on to more water because I'm losing it at a rapid rate. I'm becoming dehydrated. So I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to it a bit more. Now, sometimes that, that can be a very strong indicator that you are getting dehydrated. And certainly if when you get up in the morning and you pee the first pee you do in the day and it's very dark and concentrated, that's often a, a reasonably reliable indicator that you are a little bit dehydrated because your body's had time overnight to kind of recalibrate everything. And if you're getting up and your body's peeing very dark, then maybe you are a little bit behind on fluid intake. The problem as you progress into the day is if you look at the career of your pee when you, when you go to the toilet after you've, you've drunk some things or you've done some exercise, drinking a lot, or drinking, especially drinks with caffeine in sometimes, or just doing some exercise. All of these things can have, they can affect your fluid balance and hormones in a sh in a short term way. That mean that just because you're peeing and it's very clear doesn't mean you're actually well hydrated. It just means that your body thinks it's got to get rid of water. Uh, I'm sure you've experienced something like it when you go into a cold environment. Quite often, when people go into cold water, or if they just go outside on a very very cold day that you need a wee and that's that's one example of how the body kind of gets tricked because when it's cold your blood volume all goes to the center of the body and your body thinks it's got more blood than it has so it filters some water out and makes you pee and, and so there are definitely cases where you know you can drink lots and lots pee quite a lot but actually not be fantastically well hydrated because you know your body is just dumping water or getting rid of fluid um, if people, incidentally, if Lisa, if people want to read a bit more about that topic it's specifically, we've got a very in-depth blog on our website, which I can send you a link to for your show notes, which is which explains, you know, the times when you're looking at your urine color might be useful, and times when maybe it's not so useful. Yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll definitely include that link in the show notes and um, encourage my listeners to have a look at it. I think that's great. I, you know, one of the kind of pre-tournament guides that that we've always been given in terms of making sure our kids are okay out on the courts during a long event is to start hydrating several days before the event. You can't just start the night before. Is that still good advice? Again, I think it's one of those things which if taken if taken with a sensible in a sensible context then yes you want to be going into an event well hydrated but we're not humans aren't camels and we can't store lots and lots of water so you might you know if someone's still got a reasonable training load in the days before an event you might want to encourage them to drink plenty but you get to a certain point where if you're just drinking more all you're going to do is pee you're just going to wee more out because your body just tries to keep in balance it's got an optimal sort of level of normal hydration and you can't really go far beyond that so i think in the days before it's it's a good idea to stay well topped up but what that doesn't mean is just drinking tons and tons of extra 
What you can do, though, in the last sort of 24 hours is drink a couple of extra drinks which have a very, very high salt content or very high sodium content. And what that can do is that can give you a little bit of an extra boost because the sodium helps your body retain that fluid. And then that might top your tanks up a little bit more. And that's certainly something and some advice that we've given to one or two of the, the pro tennis players that we've worked with before they've gone into you know, what could be potentially long matches in the heat because that then gives them a little bit of an extra reservoir. And again, we've got a very in-depth blog about it's called How to Start Hydrated on our website and it explains the physiology behind that and hopes to help hopefully sort of dispose this myth of just you know, pounding lots and lots of extra water before matches because that can actually be detrimental. If you end up weeing a lot, you end up flushing electrolytes out of your body rather than improving your hydration. Right, right. And so that's a great segue to start talking about your company, Precision Hydration, and focusing a little bit more on the actual products that you guys produce and how our young tennis players can use them. So why don't you give us a little bit of the backstory on Precision Hydration, the actual product line, and what it involves? Well, yeah, well, as I mentioned with my own experiences as an athlete, I was having these problems in the heat and then trying to unpick why it was. And I, I thought it might be hydration related, but because of it, I had a high sweat rate and I, was, I could feel you know, on my skin I was losing a lot of salt. But it wasn't until a doctor friend of mine pointed out that you know, people lose different amounts of sweat and salt and that maybe I was on the higher end of the spectrum and I might need a different strategy that I kind of got on the right track. And what I then figured when I'd stopped competing was actually maybe this is something, this was extremely useful and valuable information to me. So when I first set up Precision Hydration, the idea was actually not to necessarily produce products and things, but it was kind of education and consultancy with athletes. We did, um, we used, a, and we still do use a piece of technology from, um, that's taken from the medical world in cystic fibrosis diagnostics. And we can take a sweat sample from someone at rest and we can analyze it and look at the electrolyte concentration and help use that information to help educate on how much electrolyte replacement they might benefit from. Um, so that was kind of how we started out. And then what happened was we, we were recommending for athletes different levels of electrolyte supplementation in some cases and just finding that a lot of the, the common sports drinks that you would find on the market were were generally relatively low in electrolytes often quite high in sugar and therefore not necessarily the most suitable for people who were sweating lots and lots they were more of an energy replacement with a little bit of electrolytes rather than the other way around so what we then did was we developed a, a range of different electrolyte products, which are either zero or zero sugar or low sugar, but very but they go up to a very very high level of electrolytes. So the strongest drink that we do is has about three times the amount of electrolytes of a regular Gatorade, for example. But that's actually one of our most popular selling products to what I would call in, in inverted commas proper sports people, i.e. people who are sweating a lot every day because it's it comes much closer to meeting their needs than a off-the-shelf drink does. Right. And um, you guys were really sweet and sent me a, a package of products that I've been testing out. And and I am not a heavy sweater and I'm living in a place that has relatively low humidity right yeah. now in Southern California. So I've been using the 500, the pH yeah. 500, but you have a pH 500, a pH... 1,000 and a pH 1,500. 
Can you explain who should be using each of those and how to determine which is the appropriate one to use at what time? Sure, yeah. Well, if we start with the lower one, you know, the, the pH 500 is, is kind of a similar strength to what the typical sports sinks that you'd find on the market. So quite often... Minus find- the sugar, right? Yes, that one's a, so the one we sent you. If it's the the tubes of tablets, then that's a zero sugar one. Um, and the, and if it's in the packets, then they're about two percent carbohydrate solution, which compared with the six or seven percent if it's a regular drink. Um, but that that one is is probably most commonly used by people who are like yourself, maybe just not in an environment where they where they're going to do tons of sweating. They're probably exercising daily and, and regularly and. and and you know pushing it quite hard because anything you know quite often people are just exercising recreationally are absolutely fine with just water you know it's it's when you start to get to a certain level of of sweat output this can help but then beyond that the thousand um the thousand milligram one the slightly stronger one that's what's what we would call kind of like a double strength product and we find that that's that's good for a lot of people who are obviously sweating a bit more who are potentially occasionally prone to muscle cramps or just or just you know underperforming in the heat and and then we've got the 1500 which is the super strong one and that's the one which you know you you probably understand that that we um, sell a ton of that in places like florida and texas when you've got really extreme heat really extreme humidity and where people are really just struggling to keep up with their hydration needs and on our website, we've got a, a little um, online sweat test, it's called, where people can just answer a few questions and it can help to sort of put them into the right bracket for whether they're likely to need the low, medium or high strength one, and then they can give it a try. And beyond the online sweat tests that you provide, there are more sophisticated sweat tests out there. What do those sweat tests entail and how accurate do you feel they are so we do a sweat test which as i mentioned before is derived from a medical test for cystic fibrosis and what that involves is is we take a sweat sample from your arm we stimulate the sweating with a a little device um, that clips on the arm and runs an electric current through through a circuit and it actually causes the sweat glands to produce some sweat and we can get a sweat sample in 15 or 20 minutes and analyze it on the spot and that does a very good job of, of bracketing whether your sweat losses are low medium high or very high there are also kind of more field-based tests that you can do where you can actually put patches on the body and run around and even play a game of tennis and have those patches collected in and and sampled and sent back to a lab you know for analysis so if you want to really go in depth you can you can do it that kind of way there's also when it comes and that's looking at sweat concentration when it comes to looking at sweat rate there are sort of home done methods that you can use which involve weighing yourself before and after practice sessions or before and after matches and correcting the difference in weight for the amount of fluid that you've drunk and that will give you a really good idea on how much um how much sweat you've lost and again i, I keep saying keep saying this but i think it's another good good one for people to go to is we've got a blog on our website which is all about how to measure your sweat rate and it gives you a free spreadsheet to download so you can you know punch your numbers in if you weigh yourself before and after some hard practice sessions and get an idea of how much you're sweating and work it out for yourself. So I want to just clarify something because there is a difference between measuring sweat loss and measuring electrolyte loss, correct? Absolutely, yeah. So there, so you've got sweat rate, so how much you sweat in terms of litres per hour or 
you know, fluid ounces per hour. And then you've got the concentration of that sweat. So for me, I have a very high sweat rate. I sweat easily over two liters an hour if I'm working out really hard. And I have a very high level of salt in my sweat at 1.8 grams of sodium per liter. So my, both my total sweat and sodium losses can be really, really high. On the other end of the spectrum, you can have people who have a low sweat rate and a low sodium concentration in their sweat, and they may neither sweat a lot nor lose a lot of salt. So they can be on the other end. But, but what's interesting about it is that sweat, the sweat rate and the sweat concentration are not necessarily entirely linked. So you can have people who sweat a hell of a lot but have very dilute sweat. Mm-hmm. So they may not be at as much risk as I am, for instance, of having muscle cramps and, and having problems in the heat because they find it a little bit easier to keep up with their their replacement uh, in terms of electrolytes, at least, because they don't have to supplement as aggressively. So it's a, a little bit of investigation is needed to kind of figure out where you sit on that spectrum as an individual. So if you have a kid who is cramping a lot during match play, it could be that they're sweating a lot and they're just, they need fluid, but it also could be that their sweat loss is highly salty. I'm using air quotes yeah. <laughs> and, and they don't need necessarily just fluid, but also some sort of electrolyte replacement. And it's important to know, right? Whether just drinking water is going to be sufficient or if they need to supplement with some sort of high concentration electrolytes like what you guys produce definitely it's it's all about assessing the the individual for their needs there was a really fascinating um paper published by a researcher called michael bergeron a few years ago who looked at a case of a, a young tennis player 17 years old who was cramping a lot and basically you know the bottom line with him was they found when they looked at it that he was drinking quite a bit and replacing a lot of his fluid but he was he was just not replacing anywhere near enough of his salts, not in his day-to-day diet or in his drinks. And they pointed out, I think, in the paper that one of the troubles that, that sometimes athletes and parents of athletes have with this concept is that the general health advice for most people is to reduce sodium intake and to reduce salt intake, which is probably quite valid for the average person on the street who is probably over consuming that you know salt and not exercising enough to sweat a significant amount out but when you start to get some tennis players and this young 17 year old was of a very high standard and was practicing you know multiple hours every day in the heat and they worked out that their their sort of salt needs were probably five or six times higher than the daily um, guidelines were recommending but when they started to supplement a little bit more his problems with cramping went away and his performances improved dramatically. And, and it's all about the fact that it's, you know, it's, it's looking at it through the lens of the individual to get what's right for them. And, and we, cause I think not just in, in tennis, but in all sports, we spend a lot of time sometimes looking for what is the answer you know, to what every, what everyone should be doing. And actually the answer is often extremely individual. What works for one doesn't necessarily work for another. And with salt, it's just really difficult because some people would benefit from reducing it. And I think a lot of athletes would benefit from increasing it. But that kind of goes against the, that goes against the feeling of what is good and healthy, you know, if you were taking standard health advice. Right. One of the things I find really interesting about cramping is the way that we, the public, look at it. And 
I found with my own kid that not only was it a physical ailment that needed to be addressed much like you would address any other physical ailment or injury, but there's also a big psychological component that's tied to it. If you are someone who tends to cramp, I find that there's a lot of mental energy spent waiting for the cramping to come and fearing that the cramping is going to come. And that impedes your ability to perform well as well. Definitely. It's a big psychological factor because we know that cramping is an issue of the nervous system and the, the muscle recruitment, all of which is tied into the nervous system and the brain. And we've certainly worked with a few cases of young tennis players where cramping starts to become, it almost starts as a phys- physical phenomenon, but then does end up being a psychological issue alongside it as well. And, and I think that, you know, learning to, learning to relax, learning to learn techniques, physical and mental techniques to kind of um, not focus on that being an issue and to actually can help to mitigate it as well as like you say, all the physical interventions like sports massage and potentially acupuncture and stretching and good hydration and electrolyte replacement, all of those things come together and, and help to, can help to get on top of that problem. It becomes more of a problem when it gets viewed as a, oh, it must be physical or it must be mental. And, and actually it's often a combination of the two that need addressing at the same time. And oftentimes cramping is not something that's a one-off, Right. It's, I mean, it it can be if you go to some extreme climate, but typically this is something that is an ongoing issue for especially a high level athlete. Yeah. Yeah. We've certainly seen that. Basically you, you, you kind of, I guess you can put people into three brackets. One, one bracket are the fortunate few who just never cramp. And we come across athletes all the time who just never report cramping. No matter what extreme conditions they're in, their, their body just seems to be able to, to cope. There's then the large middle group, which is people who might cramp occasionally when they push themselves really, really hard or when the conditions are very severe, but it's not a repeating problem. And then there's that, that cohort of people who are like problem crampers. And I was definitely one of those as an athlete. And for me, a large part of getting on top of the problem was understanding that I was probably at first making that problem worse by over drinking and under salting. And, and actually the, the intervention that worked best for me was increasing my salt intake, but actually decreasing my fluid intake a little bit as well, because I was sort of getting to the point where I was drowning myself in fluid in a bid to stave off the cramps, but actually diluting the electrolytes in my body and making it worse. And so I think sometimes it, it needs it needs to be stepped back and looked at in those kind of contexts to say, okay, well, what's what are, because this this person is doing something to try and obviously get on top of this long term problem is what they're doing at helping or could it actually be hindering the problem? Mm-hmm. And in addition to taking the the online test that you have on the precisionhydration.com site, how can parents or coaches find labs or places where they can take their young athlete to be evaluated and to determine what the best course of action is? We've got a growing network of test centers now that offer testing in a whole range of sports. So there's actually, there's, there's one um, quite near you in Laguna Beach in Southern California now. 
um, where where people can go and tested go and get tested and um, we've got them yeah springing up all over the place I think we're up to 65 different sites now and you can find those through our website the other thing to do though there's no sort of one place to go searching but if anyone is really interested in this and, and what we're speaking about is has piqued their interest then they can email us at hello at precisionhydration.com and we can either try and help them find the best resource near to them or we can certainly do our best in the first instance to to try and f- help them figure things out based on just um, some feedback and what they've what what they've tried, what experiences they've had. Because we have a little team in our office of sports scientists and people with with background in coaching and nutrition who are who are there to answer those those questions. And what we found is that often the first the first things that we can try, you know, there's often a lot of low hanging fruit that you can try with someone based on based on their experiences and, and we'd always be happy to field questions and emails from people to, to help start them off and get them on the right track. Being a sports and exercise science uh, person yourself, how has that helped you in your athletic pursuits? I think at first it was, I almost did the two things in parallel. I was studying sports science when I was an athlete and struggling with some of it to relate what I was learning in, into my own performance. But this was the first area for me where going and doing the scientific investigation and then finding out what, what the, um, the likely issue was and sort of working out an intervention off the back of it was, was really good. But I think the biggest takeaway for me from what I learned you know, doing my doing my science um, my science degree and the scientific studies was how to kind of isolate different variables when you're testing things and really try to get the, to the bottom of of what's making a difference to your performance or your recovery. What I see with a lot of athletes is when they're having a problem with something, they'll they'll look at it and they'll maybe try and change three or four different things at the same time, hoping that that will make an improvement. And it's great if it does make an improvement, but often you still then don't really know why it's helped because you changed three or four different things. And was it one of them? Was it two of them? Was it a combination of them? Or was it all of them that made the difference? And what, what I've learned from you know for studying this area a bit more closely is that when we work with an athlete, we really try to break down, okay, is it how much they're drinking that's the issue or not drinking? Is it how much salt they're taking or not? And we try to isolate and change one variable at a time so we can measure the impact of it before we move on. And in that way, you kind of learn in the long run and hopefully then you know, develop long-term as a, as a better athlete as a result. When I told my husband that you were the team sports scientist for a couple of F1 teams, his eyes lit up. So I have to ask you, (laughs) I have to ask you about your experience working in F1 auto racing and how, how did you take your triathlete experience to that job and what did you learn from that job that helped you now in your role with precision hydration yeah that was a fa- that was a fantastic opportunity that i had when i was younger i i basically took a work placement while i was doing my sports science degree with a formula one racing team and they were just setting up a human performance center so when i when i look back now i probably realized that actually what they wanted at the time was cheap labor and it doesn't come <laughs> cheaper than students so um but but what i fell into was a great a, 
a great little team. There was a human performance manager, a physio, a doctor, another sports scientist for a while and myself. And we, we really, our job was to try and optimize, you know, the performance and recovery of the drivers that were driving these multi-million pound Formula One cars. And because none of us were expert in driving, you know, we had the expert in driving sat in the car. We were looking at it from, from every other angle. So trying to make sure that they were turning up healthy and fit and well-prepared and um, resilient enough to last a full season. So I got, what I got doing that job was a fantastic grounding in all of that multidisciplinary sports science approach of how you need to support an elite athlete. And I think one of the biggest takeaways for me was, was how much of it was actually, I guess, what you would call kind of lifestyle management as much as anything else. Because I had all these grand ideas about the exact type of training that we would do to make people fitter, but, but just making sure that they got to bed on time and ate the right kinds of foods and weren't, you know, weren't living with too much stress and things like that was, was just as important, if not more important, you know, kind of doing those basics right. And, and I think, you know, I, what I brought to the job hopefully was the fact that I was very passionate about doing my sport, which was triathlon, so swimming, cycling and running. And we had a policy with the drivers that we worked with that whilst we, we were pretty strict with them doing quite a lot of training, they had, to, they had to log the hours to stay fit. We were very keen to help them find sports that they were passionate about. So we, we spent a lot of time mountain biking with some of them who loved that or running or rowing or kayaking or swimming or whatever it was, rather than trying to force them to do sports that they weren't so interested in. So trying to help people, help them kind of really find their passion for that. And, and you know, nowadays I'm still friends with a handful of the drivers that I worked with back then who are now retired from from that so people like the australian driver mark weber and jensen button who knew, now actually lives up the road from you in malibu um they're still into triathlon and mountain biking and trail running and things like that and i i, I would hope that some of what we did was sort of like light that fire for them and, and give them a bit of passion for sport outside of it just being simply training and for people who don't know, driving a Formula One race car is very physical, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah, I've watched enough documentaries about it to to see. And the amount of sweat loss is tremendous when they're driving because they're in these protective suits so that they don't, you know, if the yeah. car catches on fire or the car crashes or whatever, they're, they're in a bubble and protected like an astronaut sort of. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's very, um, it is very physical, more physical than people realize. And, and where we used to have the biggest problems with hydration with the drivers was in places like Malaysia in, in Asia where it's extremely hot. You're probably talking about a hundred Fahrenheit, 90% humidity, and you know you can they could easily sweat out two or three liters in the car, maybe even more during the course of a race, and that yet they can only drink you know five or six hundred milliliters of fluid at the most. So we used to have to make sure that the guys were well hydrated before they got in the car, but obviously not overdoing it because the last thing they need to do is be sat on the line with a full bladder needing needing a wee. Right. That, that that as we all know that that's about bad enough feeling like that when you're driving a road car let alone something that does 200 miles an hour so there was there was a big emphasis on making sure that you know they were hydrated and, and set up before they got in the car and then obviously recovering afterwards because these guys had such a schedule you know they would they would often finish the race on 
Sunday afternoon, go to the award ceremony if, they've, if they need to do that. And then they'd be on a plane that evening on a long haul flight. And long haul flying is just rough on the body anyway, especially from a hydration perspective. So just making sure they had a, a process to follow and they stayed on top of it was very, very important to keep them healthy. And that's exactly the life of a high-level tennis player as well. You finish a tournament, you know, hopefully on the last day because you've made it to the finals and then you're immediately off to the next event. And so that whole process of recovery is crucial. I think it's so interesting hearing you talk about how important the overall lifestyle was when you were working with the Formula One racers. Um, And that is something that we talk about a lot with young athletes as well in tennis, the importance of sleep, the importance of stress management, the importance of eating well, drinking well, obviously, uh, to overall performance. And, And we oftentimes ignore those other pieces of the puzzle, but they can make or break an athlete in terms of performance. I think most commonly at the high level, that that is what makes and breaks the athletes from what I've seen, you know, because at a high level, once you get to a certain level, the the difference in talent and skill and all the rest of it is often pretty small, really. So it's it's the little edges that count. And those edges often don't come from being particularly a lot better than someone else. It becomes from making less mistakes or being more consistent. Or, or whatever and consistency and those sort of things all come through like you mentioned the big I think one of the biggest ones is sleep if I could go back and tell the younger me one way that I could have improved my performance it would have been to take a better attitude towards sleep um, Interesting. You know, n- nowadays I've got two young kids and I've been through a phase with them where it's been challenging getting enough sleep and I monitor my heart rate variability most mornings to keep keep tabs on you know just how I am generally out of interest and it, it tends to tell me when I'm getting sick or if it tends to tell me if I'm kind of over overcooking it a bit and and what I notice is that the biggest correlator for me with getting a nice high stable heart rate variability where I feel relaxed and everything is, is getting to bed early if I can get to bed early then I can soak up a lot more stress whether it's work kids training you know everything else that's going on but with when you take away that sleep and everything else starts to, it's, it's sort of the foundation on which a lot of other things start to crumble. Um, and so, and, and I learned that a lot recently as well through long haul flying, like flying from UK to the West coast of America. And then I get disrupted sleep for three nights. And by day four, I'm, I'm on my knees, you know, right. and I've got to slow down. So try and sort of, I try and build in a little bit more R and R time and try and, adapt to the time zones a bit better when I travel now and I think and I think like you've pointed out with tennis players that's that's critical because they're if they're at a high level they are traveling all the time the other thing that I think is fascinating and also really difficult to deal with with tennis is is the fact that you genuinely don't know how long each game is going to be let alone how long each tournament's going to last and, exactly and, and and sort of you know at least when we're dealing with a marathon runner or a triathlete you know that you turn up and the marathon is going to be 26.2 miles and it's and you can if you're any good you can probably calibrate your expected finish time within plus or minus three minutes you know mm-hmm. so you know what the task is all about there are variables but they're pretty controlled with tennis you could be here in there today and gone tomorrow or you could be playing five sets a day for numerous days and and i i definitely think that that's it you know, really interesting area that I would love to learn more about actually working with more and more tennis players over time. 
Interesting. Interesting. Well, Andy, this has been fascinating and eye-opening and I, you've kind of debunked some of the, the information that I've had my whole life regarding hydration and, and making sure that I'm doing the right things for my body, much less for an elite athlete. <laughs> Is there anything else you would like us to know before we wind things up here? No, I think I think I would just love people to um, to hit our website and go to the blog section. It's keyword searchable, and if they've got questions about hydration, to type them into there. And if they're not getting good answers coming up in our blog articles, then email us at hello at precisionhydration dot com. Although we're a, we are a company that that sells services and products, fundamentally we've got a real passion for educating people about figuring out the hydration puzzle for them. So if that, that is what I would love people to do is sort of, you know, if, if any of what we've talked about has piqued their interest, they should, they should get in touch and then, you know, we can, we can have a conversation about what they might need to be, to be doing to perform at their best. Fantastic. Well, Andy Blow, thank you so much for joining us on the Parenting Aces podcast. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and I look forward to digging a little deeper into your website myself. And to my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at ParentingAces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.